Head to netsuite.com slash briefing now for their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Hey, it's David. It's been just over a week since Hamas launched its surprise attack on Israel. Over a thousand people have been killed in both Israel and Gaza as Israel responds with rocket fire. And CNN Audio has been covering this conflict on a daily basis on our podcast, Tug of War. I've been talking to our teams on the ground every day to fully understand what is going on there. The developments are really fast moving, but I want to just step back and give you a sense of what they've been seeing as they cover this conflict up close. So today, we have a special edition of One Thing as we unpack a week of war in Israel. On Monday, just days after the attack, I called up CNN International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson, who was checking out the initial phase of the military response. I'm quite literally in a, in a car at the side of the road, about a couple of miles from, from Gaza, listening to the explosions at the edge of a town of Starot. It's been just about three days now since Hamas launched its assault, So what do the streets look like now? What have you seen? It is really deserted. Uh, And most of the neighborhoods here still have electricity. Some of them are dark because they don't. But what what you're seeing here is a lot of troop movement. Uh, We just drove into the town here, into the town center. We spent the past couple of days here. You drive into the town center, you see Israeli troops patrolling. And they're nervous because this is one of those towns that Hamas took over at the weekend. And until last night, when we were here last night, they were still Hamas militants on the loose in the town. They they were being hunted down. So there are really very serious patrols out there. But they're genuinely concerned. I mean, they're so close to the border. Part of the town is only a mile from the border. They're very concerned about infiltration. But and that's why the streets are deserted, because most people have have left. And the other thing you see is you see a lot of troop movements. We've seen big groupings of tanks today, big groupings of armored personnel carriers coming in, big groupings of, of uh, uh, artillery equipment coming in that we haven't seen e- even yesterday. A lot more troops, really, you know, these are real fighting troops with experience, older troops um, in open jeeps, real combat-ready patrols that are out there on the roads that weren't there, definitely weren't there 48 hours ago. A few were there 24 hours ago, and they're there now. So what the government is saying, we're beginning to see a build-up towards that, but it's not going to be easy. And, and, and Hamas has leverage over the government right now because they have, they have the hostages and they're threatening to kill them. Uh, that's one of those patrols going by that I was talking about. And when you see them as they are there towing, towing a water container behind them and other supplies on a truck, you know they're going out in the field and they're gonna, they're gonna stay in the field for a while. These guys mm. are not gonna be going to some nice bunk house for or show. bed and breakfast. No, they're, they're, they're going out there for real. On Tuesday, I turned to CNN International anchor Becky Anderson, who is in Tel Aviv, because she's been following the plight of the hostages Nick mentioned there. Hamas claims to have taken over 100 people from inside Israel, including dual American citizens. 
And on Tuesday, the families of four of those presumed to be held by Hamas came out and spoke to the media. My name is Rachel Goldberg. I'm Hirsch's mom. I normally don't use my phone on the Jewish Sabbath, but it was an emergency and I needed to know where my son was. He'd been at the rave, the music festival in the desert on Saturday morning. And when I turned it on, there were two texts in a row from Hirsch at 8.11. The first one said, I love you. And immediately at 8.11 also, it said, I'm sorry. And that's the last time his parents heard from him. Hmm. Sagi Dekel Chen is 35 years old. He lived on a kibbutz. These are communities where they grow their own food, uh, they look after each other. It is generations of uh, families who live together. And these kibbutzes have been overrun, many of them, by these, uh, by these government. This family and my family is now missing. We have a missing person of our family. Itai Chen is 19 years old. He's a reservist in the IDF. He was deployed to the border, and he was last heard from on Saturday morning. My mother is an exceptional human being. Adrian Netta is 66 years old. She's lived on the Berry Kibbutz for nearly four or just over 40 years. She's a midwife. She spent her entire life caring for other people. We once calculated that my mother has brought in thousands of lives into this world. When Hamas walked into my mother's room in Be'eri, they saw her there alone, but they did not see a human being. All we ask from the Biden administration and the Secretary of State, Lincoln, is to act to the immediate release of all hostages. The bottom line is that they are appealing to the U.S. administration, to Joe Biden himself and to the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to help them, help them with information and help them get their loved ones released. In the days since Becky and I spoke, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to Israel and met with the families of Americans killed or taken hostage. When we come back, why one survivor is saying his daughter's death was a blessing. Welcome back. We're going through some of the reporting our CNN team has done in Israel, as heard on our daily podcast, Tug of War. CNN chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward spent much of her week talking to survivors of the initial attack to hear what they went through and who they lost. I spoke to her on Thursday, and she told me about her conversation with one of those survivors, Thomas Hand. He's... I'd say in his mid-50s, originally from Ireland, had lived in the kibbutz for 30 years with his eight-year-old daughter, Emily. A very physical dancer, singer, judo, capoeira, piano. Active, 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 active. 
Uh, yeah, she would have been a talent in one of those, that's for sure. He has two older children. His wife died five and a half years ago of cancer, so he was Emily's primary caretaker. And he told us his harrowing and horrifying story. On the night of Friday, she went to stay with a good friend of hers in the kibbutz for a sleepover. And he said he's been torturing himself because she very rarely went on sleepovers, but she had really wanted to do this, and so she went for the sleepover. And as the attack began, obviously his thoughts went to Emily, but he could not get out. He moved from the bunker quickly once he understood it was a different kind of attack. He told us that he was hiding behind the kitchen counter with a handgun that he had that he's never used before. Yeah, I just held on to the gun. It's heavy. I have a kitchen unit, so I just rested it on there, ready and waiting. And waiting. I'm thinking the army are going to be here soon. You know, just hold on a bit longer. And longer. And longer. But, uh, I've never been in the army, um, but that was the scariest few hours, day. It was a, a full day, 12 hours, until the army came in. Uh, scariest day, evening of my life. When he was finally rescued by the military, of course, he was desperately trying to find his daughter, Emily. And it was another two days, two agonizing long days, before he says he was brought down in this hotel where the survivors are staying. And there was a, a team of psychiatrists and social workers and doctors and organizers of the kibbutz there. And he said, they told me softly but quickly that Emily had died. Softly but quickly because there were a lot of other people to get to, hmm. which is a line that I just found so chilling. It really stayed with me. And then this extraordinary moment when he tells us that his feeling was relief. They just said, we found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, yes! I went, yes, and smiled. Because that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. That was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either dead, I knew she wasn't alive, or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, that is worse than death. That is worse than death. The way they treat you. They'd have no food. They'd have no water. Relief. Relief that she was dead because for him, the other possibility that she would be held hostage in Gaza for days, months, maybe even years, terrified out of her mind, being held in horrific conditions, so death was a blessing, an absolute blessing. 
I punched the air. Most of the people feel that way here. There's maybe one or two that don't realize what happens in Gaza once you're a, t a prisoner. So yeah, isn't this crazy world? I was happy to hear that my daughter was dead. That is crazy. And he even said to him, to me after he, he said this, he said, what a crazy world I'm living in that I could ever say that as a father. Right, it's backwards. But I think it gives you a sense of how some people from these communities feel in terms of the fear of being held hostage is, is so visceral, so terrifying, so horrifying that in some ways, death, as he put it, is a blessing. You've been in so many war zones over the years. What does this kind of butchery, this kind of attack do to a community's psyche going forward? It has a devastating impact. The trauma, the horror, the fear that doesn't ever leave you. It's hard to imagine walking around this kibbutz and talking to these survivors that it can ever go back to being what it once was for its residents, which was kind of a tranquil, peaceful community of like-minded individuals sharing a life together, working on the land together, sharing their money. It's very much a sort of collective mentality. Hmm. And while some expressed interest potentially in going back to see their homes and to see the aftermath, no one seems ready to envision a future where that spirit and that place could be rebuilt and revisited. Like whatever life they had there, that's, that's over at this point. And I, I, I think you see that, David, honestly reflected more broadly in Israel. There's a sense for so many people here that an inflection point has been reached and that there can't really be a return to the status quo ante, imperfect as it was, it certainly was better than the situation facing people now. Hmm. At the same time, I've also been really struck by the strength of these survivors. Tom told us that he is really focused on trying to be strong for his two older children. Hmm. And he said to us, that's the mentality here. That's the spirit here. You grieve, but you stay strong for the ones who are still alive, the ones who still remain. Well, Clarissa, thank you for bringing us these stories. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's all for us today. There's a lot happening in this conflict, changing hour by hour. Tug of War will be back with more episodes tomorrow to keep you up to date. Just search for Tug of War wherever you listen.
One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks this week to Haley Thomas. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then.